As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, here with me to break down the USA's nil-nil draw with Uruguay's 19 substitutions, is a man who knows that we could <laughs> power the eastern seaboard with Eunice Moose's engine. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Taylor, that was beautiful. For the, you had me with the subs joke. That was funny. And the fact that we saw seven in this game from both teams is wild. And and then you have the Eastern Seaboard, Yunus Musa hybrid joke, which I think is also quite good. Musa was everywhere today. Yes, he was. I think we're going to talk a ton about him later on. So I'll just say, hello, Taylor. How are you? I am well, I think. And that is my way of talking about this game or introducing us talking about this game because it was certainly a game of soccer. We watched it. Uh, we watched it back in chunks. And I remain confused. I think here is my takeaway, Joe. You tell me if you agree or disagree. I think it was essentially an off afternoon for almost every U.S. player, some more than others, but they held the number 13 team in the world, albeit a very heavily rotated number 13 team in the world, to a goalless draw. Not great, not terrible. That's sort of my overall starting impression. Joe, agree or disagree? I think I agree. I don't know that I'd go quite so far as to say it was an off night for almost everyone. I thought there were a lot of really strong individual performances, and we can talk about that later. But I think because of how good this Uruguay team is, and and because of some of the both individual and more macro team-wide issues that I think plagued the U.S. in this game at times. It wasn't the best U.S. performance ever, but at the same time, I think we're, we're all coming down a little bit from that Wednesday game against yeah. Morocco, which was just fun, right? It was made more fun by the fact the U.S. won 3 nothing, but that probably wasn't the most fair scoreline, right, in that game. The, the fun part about it was it was open. It was open. Morocco were extending forward, but they, they weren't really very good with their pressure. There was space for the U.S. to play out. There was space for the U.S. to go and, and be a little bit more direct. And, and when the U.S. pressed, they weren't entirely perfect with that on Wednesday either. And so Morocco had chances to switch and attack, and it was just a fun back-and-forth kind of game. This game had this, but it didn't have quite as much of the end product. The pressing was a little better, I think, from, from Uruguay, certainly, than Morocco's press the other day. So it just wasn't quite as enthralling as that Wednesday game, but I still think there's plenty to take away from in this one. 
That's probably fair. And I think it was also a Uruguay team that were smart. That they, yes. it's why you you schedule them for a friendly ahead of the World Cup. Because we saw, or I saw at least, a lot of kicks off the ball. Pulisic gets three in the first half alone. And there was a cynicism to Uruguay that a team like them, a very veteran team, uh, a team that has been places and done things, knows how to do and knows how to do it well. And so I think you add that to some of the pressing they were doing and then just some of the experimentation from the United States. And maybe harsh to say everybody had an off night, but I think it was a bit of a come down from the Morocco game. So let's do this then, Joe. Uh, to start off on a more positive place, since I've led us down a slightly negative road, who is a player aside from Yunus Musa that you felt like did stand out in a positive way? I, I think, and maybe we'll have some disagreement about this, I thought Christian Pulisic was very, very good for the vast majority of this game tonight. We saw some of the same issues and frustrating points about his game that you and I have talked about plenty in the past. We talked about it a ton during World Cup qualifying. But in this first half, especially when the U.S. had a decent number of chances after they kind of stopped Uruguay in the first 10, 15 minutes or so, the U.S. had chances up against Uruguay, and I thought they were they were pretty dangerous. And Pulisic was a big part of that. He was getting on the ball. Yes, he was he was being quick and assertive when he had the ball, and that I think for me is the biggest thing about Pulisic when he's in possession, not when he's making his off-ball runs, which I think is also an important piece of his game. But when he was on the ball tonight. This afternoon. It's still afternoon where I'm recording. I don't know why eh, I'm calling it tonight. Evening, night, whatever you want to go with it. Yeah, okay. When he was on the ball today, let's there do it go. that way. There we go. I thought he was relatively decisive in a lot of his moves. He released the ball fairly quickly. So there's a number of different sequences, but I think maybe the best sequence is in the 40th minute. This is that little bit of combination play with Weston McKenney. He's just looking up, trying to survey his options, playing the ball quickly, moving off the ball, getting it back. It's just good soccer. And the U.S. played some good soccer today. They also played some bad soccer, right? That's that's kind of how it goes when you play a team as good as Uruguay. But Pulisic, I thought, was pretty decisive and assertive and confident with his movement and, and on and off the ball. And I appreciated that. It wasn't flawless, but I thought Pulisic and, and really his, his counterpart on the opposite wing, Tim Weah, did some very good stuff as well in this game. One clarifying question for me. I think I know what you mean, but uh, can you, like, clarify what you mean when you say that he was relatively decisive well I mean there's always a few of those sequences that frustrate me about Pulisic and I think this is you just have to take the good with the bad because I think without the bad you don't get the good in a case like this and and really what I'm talking about is especially in the second half the the, this this game was weird Taylor and and the friendlies always are weird especially when we have seven stubs and seven subs and seven (laughs) six but friendlies are always weird in this way so the second half kind of always falls apart a little bit in terms of the flow of the game. And I think the U.S. felt that in the second half. The first 10 minutes felt like a track meet to me. Brendan Aronson was a bull in the China shop. And at a certain point, the U.S. tried to settle in and, and really bring things back down and start to exert some control over this game. And when they do that, Pulisic is often a guy who will come and drop far too deep for my taste to get on the ball. And he did that. There were maybe one or two moments like that in the 60th minute kind of range, somewhere in that set of minutes where Pulisic is just dropping deeper than I feel like he needs to. He just wants touches, right? We see that from a lot of the best players in the world. They want to get touches on the ball. And it's not always great for the flow of the possession in a team sense, but it may be necessary for those individual players. So I'm not even knocking Pulisic entirely Mm -hmm. for that. I wish it happened a little less, but we still saw some of that in this game. And I think ultimately that's okay. 
And that's why I asked you to clarify, because I think ultimately that's a fair description for Pulisic, because we want him to be decisive, but also part of that game of the kind of improvised attacking 1v1 take-ons is going to be picking that moment. And so sometimes you're not going to make a decision. You're going to do a step over and hold up and wait for teammates to overlap or surround you. And maybe the ball ends up getting poked away. But I think that's part and parcel of the way he's going to play. So ultimately, I think relatively decisive is a not to say it's like the best we're going to get from him, but it's sort of like that is the the bar, I think, yeah. for Christian Pulisic. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's a fair place to put that bar. And there should be and hopefully will be opportunities for him to exceed that bar where he is just electric going forward. And we've seen glimpses and, and bits and pieces of that. That touch against Morocco where he makes a really good run in behind on Wednesday is probably the best example in the last couple of games. But even in this game, he's getting on the ball. And he's playing some solid passes forward. He has that good uh, combination with McKenney that I mentioned. Go back about 20 minutes in that first half to the 20th minute. And he has some nice combination play with Musa. And then a minute before that, he has a good ball to Jesus Ferreira for a shot. And Ferreira can't quite sort his feet out maybe in that moment. But still, it's a good ball from Pulisic. And I think he's had a couple of those nice moments this week. And after World Cup qualifying, where I don't think, generally speaking, Pulisic was all that good... It's been encouraging for me. There are still things that I, I wish were a little different about his game, and I wish he would elevate different bits and pieces, and we kind of already talked about those. But generally speaking, I thought I thought this was a pretty good week, I guess last week and today on Sunday, a pretty good stretch of, of days for Christian Pulisic. Joe, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, and and we're going to change the structure a little bit. We've gone positive. We're going to do, I guess, a compliment sandwich. I would like to know one player that you thought did have a more negative game, and then we'll do one more positive player. But who's a player that you felt like stood out in maybe the wrong sort of way? DeAndre Yedlin, for me, is that player. And I mentioned, I wrote up a little uh, quick quick thought piece for Backfield after the game, and I pulled out Joe Scally specifically, and we can talk about him later. But I want to start with the veteran fullback in this game because I think that's appropriate when we're trying to talk about players that weren't great. Looking at the veteran in DeAndre Yedlin, I don't think he was very good today, Taylor, on the ball. Yedlin's not typically that strong, and that theme played out again against Uruguay. Poor ball in the fifth minute. There's a number of other poor balls as this game goes on. In the second half, there's a few. He's still at right back before he comes off, and Scally moves over to right back as Jedi comes on and plays left back. Yedlin was imprecise on the ball, and, and in the first half and, and for stretches of the second, he was kind of the place for me that some of these U.S. attacks went to die. So that I was unfortunate yeah. to see because Yedlin is not this hyper uh, he's not this hyper skillful possession kind of player that's not his game but I really would like to see him be able to hang in possession to then create chances for him on the overlap and he did get forward in this game and he's dangerous when he can go and run off the ball get to the end line and play some sort of ball back in to the box or into the six yard box or whatever that looks like he had one of those sequences in the 20th minute it's not quite to the end line but still a nice play but we don't get quite enough of those moments from Yedlin in at least in part because he's turning the ball over before the U.S. can really advance the ball into the final third. Yeah, and I think Yedlin is a good example of the type of player I was thinking of when I talked about this being a neutral slash down performance. Is you can definitely you could definitely cut together a highlight reel of him in this game because he has the the save on the goal line. Yedlin does that he gets clear. He has that overlapping run that he plays in that maybe Jesus Ferrer should have finished. Probably Jesus Ferrer should have finished. And I think he has a couple other attacking plays and is involved in the attack. And so there's a world in which you can make that a good performance. But I think if you're cutting a low light reel, it's going to be a couple minutes longer and there will be some heavy touches. There will be some questionable decisions. And I think you're then right to point out that we're talking about a veteran player who is expected to be a veteran leader and 
and bring some some calm to the team, but also just help organize and structure things. And I don't know if we saw much of that from him uh, this evening either. So I think Yedlin is a great shout for that. Maybe who had an off game. Uh, we will definitely talk about Joe Scally later on, but let's keep the compliment sandwich going. And let's talk about one more positive player, Joe. Sean Johnson, Taylor, I thought right. had a pretty decent showing for a guy that wasn't initially on this roster for the U.S. men's national team gets brought in because Zach Steffen is missing the camp, and so Johnson's added later, and he makes a big save in the 63rd minute. Uruguay are applying what I would categorize as maybe their second really dedicated spell of pressure on the U.S.'s goal in this game, the first being in the first half, 10, 15, 18 minutes in, the second being this sequence in, in the second half. And Johnson makes a big save. It's not him bending down to get a hand to the ball or or really leaping into the upper corner to extend and make a super athletic save. But he's exactly where he needs to be in goal to get that ball. I think it comes off of his right leg, Taylor, if I'm remembering correctly in that sequence. It's like right knee slash shin, I think. Yeah, Yeah. it's, it's a good save from Sean Johnson. Couple that with some of his distribution, which wasn't perfect in this game, but I think he also maybe wasn't helped by... Some some moments from U.S. defenders. I know he and Aaron Long have a little bit of a back and forth after Long plays him a pass, and it seemed like Sean Johnson thought Long should have played it long before then, before it even got to Johnson. But either way, there were some good balls from the back, and if you've watched any MLS over the last few years, it's pretty clear to me at least that Sean Johnson is a better goalkeeper with the ball at his feet than a lot of other keepers in MLS, and, and certainly better than Matt Turner, in my view. So I don't think that was a huge surprise to see him have a few dimes in this game. I thought Johnson was good, and he took every advantage of this opportunity. What that means for his stock and what it means for the World Cup roster and whatever, I don't know. I don't think we have enough information as to whether Beralta rates Johnson or Horvath or Turner. I mean, I don't know at this point. Slonina, if you want to toss him in there, I wouldn't at this point. But still, either way, if we can set all of that World Cup talk aside... I think Sean Johnson played well in this game and certainly raised his profile in the U.S. national team. Yeah, I think that that is true. Unfortunately, Joe, I will not set the World Cup chatter aside for a moment (laughs) because when uh, yourself, myself, and Graham Self did our roster prediction show, I think both of us were sort of okay with Sean Johnson being sacrificed as one of the goalkeepers I like where who wouldn't be heading. brought in. I like where this is heading. <laughs> um, and and so we were all right with him being left out because we felt like he wasn't going to be the starter. We sort of knew where he was in the depth chart. And so you bring in some people who maybe could compete for that number one spot. And he wasn't brought in. Then he, initially at least, then he does get the chance. And now he starts and has a solid game. And that's kind of the background to... My my question is basically, I think we tend to see at times players, usually on social media, kind of get this traction, and then there becomes this, is he going to start? Is he going to play? And Joe Scally is one who I think, not even for this game, but previously just gets hyped up, gets a lot of talk talk about him and should he be in the team and how good he could be. Luca De La Torre, another very good example where it seems like a player sort of catches fire as a talking point and then it spreads from there. And that's... I think what I'm feeling about Sean Johnson, and I sort of can't tell if this is a lot of hype that's spreading or if it's people knowing things that we don't, because it starts with Taylor Twelman in the broadcast uh, in the Morocco game saying that he wouldn't be surprised if Sean Johnson starts getting opportunities and is maybe the starter at the World Cup. Stu Holden then sort of echoed that in this game today, that Sean Johnson has quietly been there and has impressed and could be the starter. Alexi Lalas, I think, in the postgame said, Sean Johnson, I would have no problem if he starts between the sticks for the U.S. And so... On the one hand, it feels like maybe it's just a, a player who's come back in and everybody feels like, yeah, we should be giving him praise, and then he has a good game, so that praise gets ampli- amplified. 
Or is this a situation in which Sean Johnson is in that conversation as a realistic starter? And not just because of tonight, but because I, I trust some of those names and it does seem like he has been in and around the team and Burhalter likes him a lot. I, I do now wonder if it's an even more open goalkeeper contest than we would have expected heading into this camp. It's It does seem like it's open. I don't know if it's more open, though, Taylor, than we would have expected just because of how weird the U.S.'s goalkeeper situation is right now, right? You think about where Zach Steffen and Matt Turner are going to be come August, or or I really come a couple weeks from now, right? So they're both going to be likely sitting on the bench for pretty gigantic English teams. Zach Steffen's going to be on the bench for Manchester City. Matt Turner's almost certainly going to be on the bench for Arsenal. So the door is open, whether it's even Ethan Horvath playing Premier League soccer for Nottingham Forest if he can get minutes, or Sean Johnson getting minutes for NYCFC, the best team in MLS right now. I think the door is open for someone who's playing, whoever that is, to come in and take that job. I think it's been open for you know forever, however many months it's been since Matt Turner's deal with Arsenal was announced. I think the door is definitely open. I wouldn't be at all upset about Sean Johnson. The reason why I said I liked where that was going is because I thought you were going to get to the fact that I I was pro Sean Johnson on that show, right? I think you guys talked about Stephen Fry. Oh, was it me? Was it me and Graham who left him off and you had him in? I apologize. I apologize. No, it's I wasn't fishing for credit, but I just wanted to explain myself. I feel like you uh, Yeah, a little bit. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm a fan of Sean Johnson's game, and if he is starting in Qatar, I'm yeah. I'm right there with a lot of those other folks you mentioned. I don't have a huge problem with that. My my preference is still Matt Turner because of how good he is as a shot stopper. Johnson's not quite that good, but he's having an excellent season right now with NYCFC. There is every chance that he parlays that season and maybe this June window into a call-up in September and then maybe continues in the playoffs for NYCFC in the fall slash the winter and makes his way into Qatar as something more than just that third-string keeper. It's still a little too early for me to know. I think it's too early for anyone to know right now exactly what Greg Berhalter's plans are, but the door is definitely open, like you said, Taylor. Uh, I also... Don't know if Sean Johnson has kids, but he has definitely got the I'm not mad, I'm disappointed face down (laughs) pat. Because we didn't see him really unloading on anybody tonight, but multiple occasions after he has to make a save or scramble to have something happen because somebody's wide open, you can see him get up and just look at a player. And it is... Staring daggers plus like staring ice at them. It's it's a it's a threatening, intimidating look. And I like that Sean Johnson doesn't have to scream at people to let them know he did not love the decision they made there. So I come away from this game thinking Sean Johnson definitely in that conversation, uh, even if it is only the one game that we've seen him in uh, of late for the U.S. national team. It still does seem like he did enough to justify continued conversation, if not continued starts. So that's a two good performances, one bad performance uh, so far. We're going to take a break, then we'll get back to talk about the initial lineup, the initial approach, and it will evolve from there. Back soon. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. All right, we are still talking the USA's nil-nil draw with Uruguay. Joe, let's get into the lineup. We had some changes here. What were your expectations? What were your thoughts when you saw the lineup announced, what, like 12 hours before kickoff? Uh, (laughs) Sam tweeting it out. Thank you, Sam, for that. Uh, Overall impressions to start. I was fine with the lineup. I thought it made a lot of sense. The only thing we didn't know, I was sit, I sat in on Greg Baralder's press conference yesterday when he just straight up announced the lineup with Stephen Goff, asked him about it. And the only question was, would Jedi Robinson be ready to go? Apparently he was dealing with a little bit of an illness. Turns out that he wasn't going to be playing the full 90, so Joe Scally started at left back instead. Sean Johnson in goal was kind of the biggest surprise for me. But like I said, I didn't have any real issue with who started in goal. I think it's fine to give him a look. It seems like it's still an open discussion or... Or maybe it's an open discussion for the number two, given that Zach Steffen's not here. I don't know. We've talked about that plenty. But all that to say, I was fine with the initial lineup. Seeing Gedlin at right back made sense to me after Cannon got that start on Wednesday. Zimmerman and Long certainly feels like Greg Berhalter's go-to choice at center back right now. And I can't really fault him for that, to be entirely honest. And I know that's going to make a lot of people angry on Twitter, but that's okay. Left back, Joe Scali already talked about the, the Jedi Scali situation. Tyler Adams at the six makes sense. Eunice Musa and Weston McKenney playing as those two number eights, although not in the same role at all, really. And we can talk about that in just a second. Those players made sense to me. McKenney was only going to go 45 minutes in this one, Baralter said on Saturday, because he is still recovering and getting to full fitness after that broken foot. He suffered for Juve in, in the second half of the season in Italy. And then Tim Weah on the right, Christian Pulisic on the left, and Jesus Ferreira in the middle. I love that Baralter's giving those players more reps together. I want to see more of Haji Wright, and we did see more of Haji Wright in this game. But getting the MMA midfield and getting those three guys, in particular, Weah, Pulisic, and Ferreira in the absence of Gio Reyna, 
getting those guys' looks and reps together on the field, I think is so, so important. And it seems to me, Taylor, that Greg Berhalter in general, and I think we see it with this lineup and even back on Wednesday, has done an excellent job of balancing getting the core guys' minutes. And by the core guys, I mean Pulisic and Ferreira and Wea and Musa and McKenney Adams, Zimmerman in, in, in the center back spot, and one of the right backs in Jedi Robinson. He's done a great job of balancing those players and getting them on the field together with also some experimentation, with getting a half out of Haji Wright on Wednesday, getting another 25, 30 minutes from him today, getting Joe Scally minutes in both of those games and an extended look today, getting reps from different players and even tweaking some of the tactical things as well to make the U.S. harder to game plan for. I, I really think Greg Berhalter's done a very, very good job this window in particular of managing the difficult context and the difficult tasks ahead of him because there's just so few games left. I think he deserves a lot of credit for the work he's done. A lot of good points in there. I want to go back to a couple of them, but I want to keep going with that final point about some of the tweaks while still getting that core group involved. One thing I really enjoyed was Joe Scally starting. Uh, And not necessarily because of his performance, but because when I watched this the first time, it seemed like, uh, let me back it up. Against Morocco, we had Anthony Robinson on the left, Jedi Robinson on the left, and we saw him almost playing as a left winger on occasion. And then Christian Pulisic is then able to operate more centrally without the U.S. losing width. When I first watched this game, I thought they had completely abandoned that, that Joe Scally stayed home for pretty, pretty much from the start. Maybe got forward once or twice, but not much after that. And watching it again, it's the same game plan. It really is. It's just that Joe Scally less versed in it, less maybe comfortable with it, and I think also less certain of when to step on the defensive side versus when to drop off and stay deeper. And so right there, rather than that being a negative, what I see is Greg Berhalter letting Joe Scally go in there and basically saying, see if you can do what Anthony Robinson can do because Jedi is our starter, but we need somebody who can, I'm going to assume, be a like-for-like deputy for him. And my feeling is Joe Scally showed that he cannot be a like-for-like deputy for Anthony Robinson right now because... Jedi's got the wheels, but he's also got the ability to know, I think, when to go, when to stay back, but also has the ability to track back and make defensive plays. It has been a while, in my mind, since we saw him get skinned in a 1v1, let alone skinned two or three times in one half. And I think we did see that from Joe Scally, but I like that because it means that we're, we're putting a player in with the sort of core group, yeah. asking him to do a job, and then seeing if he can. Yeah, we're learning. That's a better way to put it. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think, Taylor, you're spot on, right? We're getting looks at some of these guys, and Scally's a good case study. He was kind of the odd man out, right, given the rest of this lineup. The other 10 players are players that Brothers worked with plenty before, and he's worked with Scally a little bit in the past, but he's the young he's the young plus inexperienced guy. There's a ton of other young players in this lineup, I guess, but Scally's a young, inexperienced player, and so getting a look at him in the context of this game against a very good Uruguay team is a good test. It's a good test for this entire team. Scally maybe didn't shine. And I let, let's just talk about that, I guess, Taylor, sure. right now. So there's a few different moments in this game where Scally doesn't end up looking very good. And I think there's actually a few different reasons for that. So let's go through a couple of them. The fifth minute and the eighth minute are both sequences where Uruguay have the ball on the left side and they play some sort of switch over to the right side. So that's Scally's left side for the U.S., Uruguay's right side. Uruguay play that switch from side to side over to Scally's side. And there's just so much space. Or or they just get behind Joe Scally, right, on that right side. And Christian Pulisic has to track back or whatever the situation is. Over and over again, that was happening in the first few minutes. And according to Michele Giannone, Greg Berhalter wasn't too happy about that. On the sideline, he was gesturing and, and trying to make it clear to Joe Scally that he needed to stay home a little bit more. 
there are moments in this game where I felt like Scally was too aggressive and that he didn't quite nail his defensive reads. He was overly ambitious trying to step, step forward from left back, and he made his own life harder and his team's life harder. To be entirely fair to Joe Scally, though, I also thought there were moments where the U.S. didn't do a very good job in general of closing down the initial ball. On one of those cross-field switches, DeAndre Yedlin gets beaten on that right side for the U.S., Uruguay's left side, and lets that switch happen. In another moment, it's I think, these are, I think these are different moments. In another moment, before the Uruguay get the ball on their left, the U.S. is right, the U.S. are, are not really positioned or aren't ready or are just too slow to go close the ball down on that initial on that initial switch for Uruguay. So even before Joe Scally is even involved in the play, I think his teammates hung him out to dry just a little bit, and Uruguay got into that soft outer belly of the U.S.'s 4-3-3 in the, the pockets outside of the central midfielder, behind the winger, and in front of the fullback on the right side for the U.S., so behind Weah, in front of Yedlin, and outside of most often McKinney. Uruguay got into that space, and the U.S. just kind of let him have it, which is okay, and, and right, these switches are generally okay because they're not super high-value areas out there on the wing, but if you happen, if you let it happen enough and then you you scramble afterwards, we talked about this on Wednesday after the Morocco game, then you might be in some trouble. So Scali, maybe not great defensively, certainly not very good on the ball. I thought in this game he didn't bring a whole lot. His crosses weren't all that accurate. His touches were a little slow. But defensively, it was a mixed performance from him, but also maybe a mixed performance at times from his teammates. So I agree with everything you said about how the, the, that kind of big switch being part of what was going on with Joe Scali on the evening. And this is a thing that we saw against Morocco as well. Their best chances are basically when the United States is trying to press and overload one side and gets bypassed, and now you've got a wingback advancing the ball with everybody kind of tucked in and staying home centrally. There's just acres of space to attack. And that is what kept happening with Joe Scali. And so initially it's he's too far forward. Then he's trying to maybe hug the interior attacker and he's left space out wide. I'm not sure if that's his fault or if that's what he's being told to do or... I think there is a world in which he is, as a youngster, making his, I believe, first start. It is also him maybe trying to do too literally what Berhalter's asking. And so if he's saying, hey, don't get so far forward, make sure you're tracking back, then he's like hugging that that attacker and staying back and doing the defensive job, but leaving space. And I agree with you that it's not necessarily Joe Scali's fault that the, those that those acres of space are able to be exploited. But I think it's it's a much... More concerning thing when the United States is playing a back three, that that seems to be an open source of attack for the opposition, and I hope it's something that they're able to work a bit more on or figure out how to counteract without having to, I think, ultimately go a bit more defensive and have Pulisic staying a bit wider and then have Joe Scali staying a bit deeper, and it sort of limits what they're trying to do with their attack and with their transition to attack. So I agree that is more of a a system problem, but I still think there were moments in which Scali could have shown, yes. yes, it's the system, but I can also do things on and off the ball. And I think we still saw him, the one with Darwin Nunez where he just gets turned. That That's inexperienced, but it's also not a thing that can happen because it leads to that counterattack. It should have been a better ball in. It really should have been a goal in the opening five or ten minutes. And then I think on the ball, he at times made smart passes and tried to, I think, I feel like every time there was a risk of him having a quicksand game, he stabilized and just made some simple passes and got the ball moving and got some confidence back, but then would, would try too much or would try just like would overhit a ball or underhit a pass. And I just think it was, it was a more erratic performance than I would have liked to have seen from Joe Scally. But it again backs up what we have been saying about him, which is that he's a young player. He's a raw player. He has some things he does really well. Nothing, I think, that is at that next level where he is 
needs to be in the conversation for starting, maybe in the conversation for depth. But I think we've seen good performances from George Bellow uh, as a deputy left back. And I don't think anything we saw from Joe Scally tonight made me think, nope, it's his spot as the reserve left back until someone else can take it. It's another one where I think eh, it's kind of wide open. We'll see yep. what happens next. Yeah, it is wide open, Taylor. That's exactly what I was thinking as you were going through that that last bit on Scally. I don't know who's going to Qatar as the other yeah. left back outside of Anthony Robinson. For me, it's maybe Serginho Dest right now. And in, in the four fullbacks in that squad, if you only want to bring four, it might be time for five. But if it is just four in that 26-man, we think, roster, maybe it's Jedi as the only actual left back. Dest is also an option at left back. And then you have Cannon and Yedlin as the two right backs. So that's four, and, and Dest can play on both sides, and maybe that gets you the split you need. But Scally hasn't locked himself in, certainly. And I don't think it was maybe reasonable to expect him to do that in these first couple of games, but he certainly hasn't done it either way. I'm a little less sold on George Bellow, Taylor, than maybe it sounds like you are. Sam Vines has been okay for the U.S. in the past. We haven't seen Dewan Jones recently. Uh, Kevin Paredes is not broken in yet at Wolfsburg. Jonathan Gomez is a reserve player at Sociedad. We're just not really clear on what that picture looks like, and that's that's fine, I think. There's still a few more chances to really try and figure this out, but I think we learned one thing, at least about that situation today, and it's that Joe Scally certainly didn't lock himself in. Exactly. And let me be really clear. I'm not saying George Bellow has even impressed me. I'm not saying he hasn't impressed me. I'm just saying that I don't think of him and think like, ah, he's shown he cannot hang. He cannot do this. He's not good enough here. Uh, and I think if Joe Scally comes in and just has a really, really strong performance, we come away from this thinking, okay, yeah, he's number two on the depth chart, and we know that now. And instead, I come away from this thinking, he's got some work to do. And and I think Alexi, at the end of the game, said like one of the things he learned is that Joe Scally will be ready for 2026, which is a nice backhanded way of saying maybe not ready for 2022, but I think we shall see. We've got... Uh, a whole half a season to be played or a third of a season to be played before the World Cup rolls around. So maybe Scally can can kind of move up, cement his game, cement some, uh, clarify some of the vulnerabilities or fix some of those issues, and then we'll see where we are. But Joe, like I think when we talk about, okay, so we don't know who the backup left back is. We're still unsure about the number nine, maybe the center backs. I want to pause for a second and move away from this game. I have a, a list. I've, I've written one through 20. And Greg Berhalter said, uh, when questioned, that he knows if it's a 26-man squad, he knows, I think it was 18 to 20 names. And we've talked about that core group. I have a feeling we can knock out most of that oh, list yes. fairly quickly. I so like I'm gonna, this. I like I'm going to try to write it down. Let's start Let's start in the back and work our way forward. So we would assume Stefan and Turner are both locks. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I think there's a chance that maybe that changes, but in Berhalter's yeah. mind right now, I'm guessing those two are locks. Yeah, I think there's. I wouldn't say... I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, yep, that guy is definitely going to Qatar because injuries and we've got plenty sure. of time. But I'm saying, yeah, if we're looking at who he refers to as that group yeah. that he's pretty much locked in. From there, I, I think the third goalkeeper spot is open. It seems like Sean Johnson is leading there and maybe won't even be the third one. But I don't think we could say that's locked for sure. Uh, what, and then I would say Serginho Dest, Jedi Robinson, we know, going as long as they're fit. Uh, Zimmerman, I think, has proven himself to be the most likely starter at center back. Who else would you say would be locks to go from the defensive side? So I think DeAndre Yedlin is a lock just based off of his presence in the locker room, it sounds like, in, in his status as a veteran. Again, don't think he played very well in this game. I don't think he's been great at times in the past for the U.S., but he has had good games. I think he's a lock. Reggie Cannon, I don't think is a, a lock lock, I but I think he is 
pretty darn close as is Aaron Long. Reggie Cannon is helped by a couple factors here. He's helped by that back three experiment against Morocco, where the U.S. shift between a 4-3-3 in the press, we talked about this, into a three at the back with the right back, who was Reggie Cannon, slotting into the right center back spot. And so everything just pivots, right? Everything slides from right to left a little bit in the U.S.'s shape. And Cannon is a great fit for that role because, well, I don't want to say he's a great fit for that role, but he's an okay fit for that role. He's been doing it a bunch for Boavista in Portugal. Cannon's helped by that and by just the general lack of clarity in the left back spot right now. All of the right backs are helped by that because if Des can do both jobs, then if you're the third right back on the, the squad, you might actually pop up into that second spot if Des moves over. So Cannon and Long, I think, are close. Other than that, Taylor, I don't think there's a lot yeah. of other clarity in the back. I think it gets a lot more clear as we get into midfield and into that forward line. Would you say if Chris Richards were healthy and maybe played one of these games, yeah. would you feel more comfortable putting him in as a lock, or would I, it still I, be sort of uncertain? I think he'd still be uncertain, but it to- okay. it's a hypothetical, right? It totally yeah. depends on how he performed. Richards is certainly hurt, though, Taylor, and this is what you're getting at. He's hurt because he's not involved. So we just don't know enough about how he would fit and how this how he would look at this level. I think he could do a job, and I think he could do a job better than EPB or it seems like CCV at this point, uh, but we just we don't really know that, at least yeah. not right now. I think I ask because uh, I, I will go ahead and jump ahead to Gio Reyna is, is, I think, a lock. Yeah. It's just he is also injured, and there is that question of will he be able to play? Will he be injured? Who knows? But he's one who, though he's not involved, I still think of him as definitely yes. uh, going to go. I would say Tyler Adams, very, very likely to go. He's definitely a lock. Uh, Weston McKinney, as long as he's healthy, but uh, would be a lock. Eunice Musa as well. Do you think... Luca De La Torre has played himself into that spot because I'm inclined to say he has. I think so. I, yeah. I'm a huge fan of De La Torre's game. I think he's been very good for the U.S. He has a pretty notable turnover in this in this game and his little mm-hmm. cameo as the seventh sub in in the second half here. But to me, it's, it's so the turnover to set the scene is he receives the ball, he starts dribbling towards the right in the attacking half. And to my eye, it looks like Edson Cavani just basically shoves him to the ground and takes the ball and starts yeah, attacking. Right, so. Yeah. I, I don't really penalize De La Torre much for that. It certainly looked like a foul to me. And I, I think generally he's a very good player. So De La Torre would be one of my locks. Don't know if he would be one of Baralthers, but I'm going to put him on there. And then Calvin Acosta is the other oh, midfield course. name that I would put. We haven't seen him in this window, which I think is totally fine. I know he was dealing with a little bit of fatigue or an injury. I don't know exactly what the situation is right now, but Acosta's got to be on there too. All right. And then we move to the attack. I already mentioned... Gio Reyna, we would assume Pulisic, we would assume Wea, we would assume Brandon Aronson. Uh, I think Jesus Ferreira, like as long as he doesn't have a massive downturn, is going to be in that conversation, if not starting. Anyone else I'm leaving off from the guarantees uh, to be there. We're at 17 right now, not including Long, Cannon, or Johnson. Uh, Paul Ariola might be in that conversation that he continues to be called in and involved in this team. Maybe he's on that list for Burhalter, and if he is, then maybe Christian Roldan is the same sort of status. But I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say both of them are definitely going to Qatar. Same. I think we're in that in-between place on Areola. Maybe maybe he's in the same group as Cannon and Long in that it feels like they're likely. Like, if the U.S. is trying to take you know, a handful of wingers and we get past Pulisic and Aronson and Weya and Reyna, and they will take more than four wingers. I'd almost be sure of it, especially now that we're seeing Aronson pop up as a number eight in back-to-back games. I really think it's it's a good sign for someone like Ariola. I don't know for a fact if it would be him or Jordan Morris or, or maybe someone else in one of those spots, but Ariola to me, feels like the best bet outside of that top four in the winger pool. 
All right, so that puts us at 17. So we're we're, we're around we're where Berhalter was with yeah. the 18 to 20. Uh, who, who knows which names we might be missing? But okay, so we, we have we have a good idea, and I think that that mostly makes sense. It's nice to know that Yedlin would be in there because that's not one maybe I would have included. But I think you're absolutely right that though his green hair and a poor performance tonight have me questioning <laughs> him, uh, they don't. I like the green hair. Uh, I think that he does bring that veteran presence, and we've talked about it before, that he seems to have a really strong relationship with Tim Weah, seems to have a really strong relationship with Weston McKenney, and I think he is in there for the locker room presence alone. So we have 17 that we would say we feel comfortable saying will definitely be going, and then we have around six that we think are likely uh, to go or very much strongly in consideration. So that leaves... A lot of center back uh, discussion, yeah. and that leaves a lot of number nine discussion. Shocker, shocker that those are the two positions that we remain uncertain about. Uh, we should probably get back to this game, though, Joe. I think we can take one more break, and then we'll get back into discussing who did well, who, did, who didn't do well, what else we learned from the USA's draw with Uruguay. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. All right, Joe, let's get back to talking about this game in particular. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about formation. We've talked about some individuals. I want to make sure we cover all the bases when it comes to the overall team performance, because I don't have a ton of notes about the comprehensive game plan. It does feel like it ended up being a lot of individual notes for me. So I want to ask you, what would be a thing you feel like the team as a whole did well tonight? And what would be a thing that you think they did not do well tonight? Okay, so this answer might actually scratch both of those issues. It, it is, but I think it it lends itself take, a little more to the things they did well. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to work on that out here, Taylor. I think, and this is also a big picture thing from this game. I think the U.S. did well at times in progressing the ball from the back. It was not perfect. It definitely was not perfect. Uruguay had some real success pressing and kind of disrupting that play and forcing the U.S. long and, and all that kind of stuff. But the U.S. in general, I thought, showed some really interesting and promising signs building from deeper areas. And a big part of that, Taylor, is to go all the way back to your intro to this episode, Yunus Musa powering the entire East Coast. He was everywhere in this game. But specifically to start plays, he was back level or at times deeper than Tyler Adams. So that's a key distinction to make here. It sounds pretty familiar in some ways because we just saw that against Morocco on Wednesday. But the the shape and some of the surrounding pieces outside of those players was different. So Yunus Musa in this game defensively was most of the time defending as one of those dual number eights in the 4-3-3. It was Adams at the six, McKenney on one side, Musa on the other side, behind the front three and in front of the back four. That's very straightforward. We see it all the time. In possession, though, and as the U.S. tried to build from the back, they did a lot of that in this game, the shape would shift. It would go not to the back three. It would stay in that back four shape with the center backs and Yedlin on one side and Scally on the other. 
But the midfield shape would change, and the attacking shape even changed a little bit. Musa would drop next to or, or deeper than Tyler Adams. Those two would form a double pivot in front of the center backs, really in front of that back four, maybe level with the fullbacks. Weston McKenney would step higher and move a little bit wider on that right side, really into the right half space, kind of doing what Brendan Aronson did the other night. And then you had uh, Tim Weah a little bit wider on that right side, and you had Jesus Ferreira basically acting as a... I don't know, another attacking midfielder or, or he and Weston McKinney forming a front two. It's, it's very subjective and fluid how you want to phrase this, but really it turned into like this 4-2-4 or a 4 triple 2 build-up shape for the U.S. where you had the back four and Musa and Adams as the double pivot with McKinney and Ferreira as the two central attackers, Pulisic on the left and Weya on the right. And I didn't love what that shape did for everyone. Weston McKinney in particular, I don't think thrives in that maybe quite as advanced position, at least with the national team. But man, I thought Musa shined in that role a lot like he did, but even maybe more so than Wednesday night. Musa was getting on the ball. He was driving it forward from like the first two minutes of this game, Taylor Rockwell. He was getting on the ball and driving it forward. Second minute, he does that exact same thing. My one critique, and this kind of applies to Musa and maybe a few other U.S. players too, just just this game in general. I don't think they maybe always released the pass on time. We talked about this with Pulisic a little bit. Um, but I think Musa, because he had so many touches, really does fit into this category. He was electric driving the ball forward. He pulled off a number of different Musa maneuvers in this game, breaking lines on the dribble, finding pockets, resisting the press. He was brilliant at so many things. Just my one critique about his game is he just needs to pass the ball a half second sooner. Christian Pulisic was waving his arms a little bit and looking for it between the lines. Brendan Aronson, I think, was was pretty naked in, in the second half on, shoot, what minute was that? The 58th minute. Musa drives all the way forward, great work in the build-up, great work in ball progression, but just doesn't pass it off quite soon enough. So that's kind of the the good and the bad about Yunus Musa right now, just like we talked about with Pulisic earlier. He was brilliant on the ball and took so much weight off of Tyler Adams' shoulder, shoulders in build-up to force Adams, to, to really unforce Adams uh, out of being the, the main responsible midfielder in the buildup. Musa took that job over in this game, and I thought was a really, really valuable player in that phase. It just wasn't quite perfect, just like the entire buildup shape wasn't quite perfect. But man, I liked a lot of what that did for this U.S. team and what it did in this game in particular. Joe, forgive me. I took a lot of notes while you were talking. Did you talk about the, the Ferreira miss uh, from like two yards out in what Musa did well? No, that was, shoot, All what right. was that, the 20th minute, right? Uh, 21st, yeah. Yeah, yeah go I'll, for it. I want to because that I think uh, speaks to what you're talking about because you go back and watch that. First of all, Jesus Ferreira very much involved in that buildup and then sprints to get into a, an attacking position. So I like that effort from him on and off the ball. I wish he had taken that opportunity. But that sequence, to your point about building out, starts with Musa receiving on the half turn and making a difficult turn, then playing a very direct vertical ball into Pulisic's feet. Musa then charges forward and eventually gets, I think, the, the ball played back to him, and he's the one who ends up playing in DeAndre Yedlin for the cross. And so that's really, really good that he starts the move. He then gets heavily involved in the attack. He ends up playing what could have been the MLS assist had things have worked out differently. But also, when you go back and watch that, there is a, and this is perhaps harsh, but there is like a half second to a whole second, a big margin, I know, in which Tim Weah is central and is pointing for the ball to be played into his feet. And there is a yard to two yard sort of channel that if Musa spots it and hits it in that moment, he plays Tim Way in and it's one-on-one -on -one and it's an easy, if not easy finish, then it is an easy opportunity to finish. But he doesn't 
you spot that one or waits just a little bit too long and then ends up playing that ball wide to Yedlin. And I think that does speak to what you're talking about, that Musa does so many things so well. I think the only thing I would like to see him kind of consistently improve is that final ball is a little bit more of the incisive attacking passing. But with that said, I think that the way he is able to help build out from deep, either by carrying the ball forward or yeah. by, by spotting those good passes to, to make kind of 20, 30, 40-yard vertical passes, uh, very important in alleviating pressure. So I continue to love me some Yunus Musa. And I think it's interesting, Taylor, that we've seen this double pivot in back-to-back games. Yep. That's not really been, at least not for a long time, like the thing for this Baralter US team, it's been, yeah, we're, we're kind of a single pivot group. Adams might drop in when the possession gets into the middle third. He might drop between the center backs or next to them, and we might get a little double pivot action that way, or, or a center back might, so excuse me, a fullback might tuck into the back line and we'll get the back three, and maybe we'll get some impromptu looks of the double pivot as the game progresses. But this was, and I, I wrote this, this was like an extended rare but also purposeful look at a double pivot, just like the Morocco game. Now, the the defensive structure behind those players in possession was different, and so it was not the same setup. I want to be clear about that. But the midfield shape was remarkably similar in that way. You had Adams and Musa together. I I don't necessarily think that's a coincidence, Taylor Rockwell. Getting those players on the same line and taking that responsibility off of Adams' shoulders feels like a pretty good way to build from the back to me. It feels like a better and more sustainable and safe way to progress the ball. If the U.S. are committed to that in a particular game, it would not surprise me at any point going forward if we saw those two players next to each other. Now, the the difficulty here is what it does in my mind to Weston McKinney or to whoever that third midfielder is. Maybe it's McKinney in the double pivot at times. It wasn't that in this game. But basically, it kind of feels to me, Taylor, like there's an odd man out. And, and there wasn't against Morocco because the personnel was different, right? It was Aronson starting instead of McKenney in that midfield. And Aronson thrives in the half spaces. And that's where he was in this game. Excuse me, in that game against Morocco. He was in those spaces making runs in behind and just being a general thorn in Morocco's side. And it worked. McKenney's not quite as mobile. He's a little bit more... I think he's just better in deeper areas. He's, he's able to pull more strings further downfield. And I think we lost a lot of what makes McKenney so good. Now, I want to be clear, that's a big asterisk over all of this because McKenney is just working his way back from injury. So maybe a fully fit Weston McKenney is just his same dynamic, aggressive, entertaining, energetic self. But I don't think he really was that today. And part of me feels like he was not necessarily being put in the best position to succeed, which leaves me wondering if the U.S. comes out in this shape again, Maybe one of, I know we've been praising Musa for how good he was, and you have too, Taylor, at a lot of different stuff. Maybe Musa is an odd man out, or maybe McKenney is an odd man out, or maybe it's Adams who's the odd man out if the U.S. is really trying to control the game, because I think you lose a little bit in that front five, or, or in this game, I guess it was more of a front four. You lose something in that attacking line when you're trying to push McKenney up into that space. It's just not quite the same as it is if it's someone like Aronson or, or maybe eventually a healthy Gio Reyna in that pocket. So I'm I'm sort of Joe keeping a list of the things based on this conversation that I would like to see from the United States in a competitive game, which the Nations League games will be, even if they're not against as competitive opponents as we've just played in these last two games. But I think in a game where it's an official competition, you can justify a bit more the physical reaction that I would like to see from the United States. I, I'm, I'm being vague here. I'll be more specific. The things I would like to see going forward, number one, I think against a team that's playing in a back three with attacking wingbacks, I want to see us do a better job of nullifying some of that space or nullifying some of that threat out wide. Because I still think 
it it kept popping up uh, uh, from Morocco, certainly in this game against Uruguay, and even... I think in the second half, there's still just overloads and acres of space. And when pe- people do go close down, someone else makes a run and they're not picked up. There was one at the end of the first half where Long goes to mark somebody who's made an interior run. Zimmerman is already marking somebody. And that left, I want to say it was Darwin Nunez, just unmarked in the box. And the cross comes in. It's overhit, But there's a wide open very talented player just sort of sitting there, and that cannot be part of the game plan. So I, I would love to see the United States deal with the back three more, or uh, deal with that sort of issue coming out of a back three. Number two, I want someone, and this is where I think Weston McKinney uh, can, can be Weston McKinney, I want someone to kick somebody back, because Pulisic gets kicked so much off the ball and after the ball has gone, and there wasn't much of a response from the United States, and I just want everyone to know that if you kick our player, we will kick you back. So that level of maybe physicality was missing in my mind, And the third one that connects to your point about an odd man out, given that McKinney is coming back from injury, given that he like we wouldn't expect him to play a full 90 in these upcoming games. I think that gives Berhalter carte blanche to just see what happens if you start Brendan Aronson there again, because I I do think he looked better in that more advanced role. And if you're going to go with that double pivot of Musa and Adams, Maybe you have the opportunity here to say, oh, we're going to give Weston another rest and then we'll play him in that second Nations League game. But in the first one, we're going to start Brendan Aronson Central and see what happens with that midfield three. Because I think Brendan Aronson came in and obviously fought for every single thing, gets into tackles, wins balls, but also helps facilitate attacking play. And I, I continue to really enjoy Brendan Aronson. I would love to see him get involved in that midfield as well. Yeah, Taylor, I'm with you. It is... I just want to be careful about all of this discussion because of the different factors at play here when we're trying to maybe talk about Aronson stealing a few more minutes in central midfield. The game he got of these two games, at least the start he got, was against a much more open and I would argue worse Morocco team than even this rotated Uruguay team. There's that bit, and then again, to reference the McKenney injury, he's not himself yet. So it's too early for me to make any big conclusions, but just that idea of maybe there being an odd man out in this particular build-up structure, I think is becoming more real to me, and I'm curious to see what Berhalter does. At this point, I'm, I'm really not anything past curious because I yeah. just don't think we have quite enough info yet. No, yeah, I agree with you. I think what I, what I failed to stress but was trying to stress is that if everyone is fully fit and you sit Weston McKinney, that is a talking point. You're yes, going to get a ton of, of questions. Of it's going to be, is he not in your plans? Is he not a starter? But with him carrying or recovering from the injury – it's more understandable. And so yes. I think this is you kind of have a free he, pass. Right? Exactly, like you have a little exactly, bit of a, of a free exactly. ticket there. Yeah, exactly. So let, let's keep talking about the rest of the players who did actually play because you talked about Musa and his uh, facilitating play out of the back and helping with possession. I saw some people criticizing Walker Zimmerman and saying that he is just not good enough. I know that no opinion is like ever truly wrong, but that opinion is wrong. Walker Zimmerman, I thought, was immense this evening. And I thought he did all of the things that we have come to expect. Being the defensive organizer and leader, maybe we need a little bit more organizing from the entire back line. But uh, I thought he was he was great on that front. I thought he won stuff in the air. He makes a few last-ditch defensive plays that saved the draw. He also makes a few of those... We need a term for them, but it's when Zimmerman, like the Zim step, when he closes 15 or 20 yards to either win a ball outright or just make the player who the ball's going into their feet uncomfortable and they take a heavy touch or they turn the ball over. I thought he was excellent on all those fronts. And then also his distribution. He has one, I think it's one of the ones that leads to a Ferreira shooting opportunity in the 19th minute or so. He splits three Uruguayan players to play it into Christian Pulisic's feet. And then he has another one. 
I think it's the one that I texted you where Pulisic sort of slows down and tries to beat somebody and then doesn't. But it's still Zimmerman getting the ball, and he pings one into Pulisic's feet. Again, it splits two. It's another 30- or 40-yard ball. It's not world-class. It's not next level. It's not the you know the greatest center-back distribution. But it is another wrinkle to his game that I want to see. I want to see him kind of keep building that confidence and that skill set. And tonight I thought he was one of the best performers for the United States, if not the best performer for the United States. Agreed. Zimmerman was good. He was pretty solid on the ball. I think generally he was good defensively. There were a couple of those moments where the ball is kind of bouncing in his area. True. One of them was a throw-in from Yedlin, and the ball just takes a weird bounce. In was Zimmerman. it throw? And, yeah, that I think it was a throw-in. Throw I oh, think it goodness. was, Taylor. Maybe maybe I have some different things no, confused I just, in my I meant to I meant to pay more attention to that on the rewatch, and I, and I didn't. I have it in my notes as figure out what happened there, because you're talking about the one where he's sort of waiting and then goes to kick yeah. it, but by then it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird sequence. The ball takes a strange bounce on the field at Children's Mercy Park, I think, and Zimmerman ends up back on his heels. But by and large, when you combine this game with what we've seen from him throughout World Cup qualifying, I mean, he is he is the only center back right now that's a lock. There's a reason why we, we talked about that earlier and, and had him as a lock on that list. He is the guy right now. He's someone that the U.S. really needs to protect. I would be shocked, Taylor, if he starts against Granada on Friday, just as I would be shocked if a lot of the key U.S. guys start. They've played a lot of minutes already, and Zimmerman in particular, you have to do everything you can to make sure he's healthy. And I know most of his games between now and the World Cup will be played with Nashville and MLS, but man, you you have your fingers crossed and your toes crossed that Walker Zimmerman is still healthy by the time November comes around, because I think he's just that important right now. Uh, let's talk more individuals, Joe. Where should we go next? Because we've had some positives. We've had some negatives. Uh, I feel like we, we haven't yet gotten into Jesus Ferreira all that yeah, much. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, we haven't talked Tyler Adams very much, but I think it was a Tyler Adams-esque game. He gets skinned once. I think he has a, a misplaced pass one time that's potentially problematic. But other than that, I saw him doing a lot of what we've come to expect. And really, ultimately, <laughs> I guess... It's sort of unfair because he's like the unsqueaky wheel, but we know Tyler Adams is going to start. We know he's an incredibly important player, so it like we don't really need to talk about more than that other than like maybe things that he could do down the road to improve. But overall, it's basically Tyler Adams is going to start at the number six, and that's all we need to say. I think it was fun to see Adams be more aggressive in mm-hmm. possession because of that double pivot. He had more freedom to go forward, and I think he had even more freedom today than he did against Morocco because McKenney and Musa were both in that midfield together versus Aronson and Musa. And so when you have McKenney and Musa behind you, or at least you know they're in the same general area, you can go forward more. And so I enjoyed seeing Adams drive the ball forward a little bit more in this game. I thought he was generally good in possession and generally good in defense as well. So Taylor, I'm with you. What did you think of Jesus Ferreira in this game? You mentioned his name there. I thought he moved into good spots. I thought his movement was a little sharper in this game than it was against Morocco, which is a good thing. He was in some solid goal-scoring positions. He didn't put the ball in the back of the net, which is becoming a little bit of a theme. I subscribe to the idea that that's frustrating, but also okay, because it means that eventually the goals will come. I don't know, Taylor, I know you're a little bit more hesitant to accept that fact, which I I do understand it is frustrating, but setting that aside, maybe, or, or including that, what did you think of Ferreira in this game? I thought he was good. I did. And, and I think you're right that I'm I'm less inclined to say he's making really smart runs, he's where he needs to be, and so that's all that matters because ultimately you still want him to score goals, and he is scoring goals for Dallas, so we want to see him translate that to the U.S. national team. I agree, first of all, with the idea that he's making the runs, he's getting into the right positions. Sometimes the ball is not there, sometimes the surface is lacking, sometimes he's just not able to take that chance cleanly, and I agree that if you do it enough and you get into the right spaces enough, eventually the goals will come. 
the eventually is the problem there. Because if he scores a goal in this game, like, I am confident saying, yep, he's the number nine. And it's kind of ridiculous that that's the margin or that's the kind of what would be the difference maker. But I thought... Like, as I said, in, in, in the mist that he does have that everybody will talk about, and, and I think unfairly, because I think there's a couple extenuating circumstances there, but it's also him, like, dropping in, and I think it's kind of a blown pass into his feet, or if, if it's not, then I think he has a lot of work to do because he's back to goal, he's got people pressuring him, he doesn't have a ton of obvious options, but he holds the ball up and then lays it off, and away we go. But then it's not just that he lays it off, it's that he charges forward and tries to get involved in the attack and ultimately does unsuccessfully at that, but... That's representative to me of what we're coming to see from Jesus Ferreira is a lot of good hard work, a lot of off the ball running, but then at the same time in moments when we need him to have that final touch or or the final ball or a good shot, he he doesn't always like bring that play to completion. And that is the frustrating part for me right now is that if he scores that goal or if he hits one more pass, I think I just continue to feel more and more confident about him as that number nine. And in the end tonight, I'm not saying that I feel like he shouldn't be there. And now it's it's Haji Wright until it's somebody else. I don't want to be that reactionary. But I do need him to start scoring goals, or at least a goal for the U.S., to feel better about that sort of up-and-down nature of his performances. It would be comforting, right? It would be very, very comforting to yeah. have Ferreira just put the ball in the back of the net. And I think psychologically for him, that would be a huge weight lifted off of his shoulders to, to get a goal and to start to really... I don't, add to that tally after all of the chances he's had and all of the spaces that he's moved into. I, I agree with you, though, Taylor. I think generally he was good in this game, and really he's been a, a, a good player for the U.S. for most of his caps. I mean, I think generally speaking, he's been a positive contributor to this team. I think he's a lock for Qatar because of what he does and how it's different than other nines in the pool. One thing that I also want to give him credit for is his pressing. He's aggressive and he's more mobile yes, than a lot is. of other nines, and he runs. He moves defensively and goes to close down the ball. I think he has a better understanding of some of those pressing angles and pressing triggers than Dude, maybe some yeah. other nines in the pool, which is another point in his favor. All that to say, nothing really changed for me, I guess, on Ferreira in this game. I think he was probably a little bit better than he was against Morocco. He found some more dangerous spots, uh, and, and I think he was more influential in some other phases of play as well. And I think that's a good sign. I'm right there with you. I'm just hoping that at some point the goals start to come, and I, I really do think they will. Two things there, Joe. First of all, very, very happy that you spotlighted the pressing because I absolutely agree with you. And we have seen other players uh, starting as the number nine or like Tim Way is another one who not playing as the number nine. But I remember multiple times him over pursuing and then the player that he's trying to press kind of cuts it by him and plays it wide to the player that Way should have been marking. And now away goes the opposition. And I don't love that sort of I'm running, I'm running, I'm going to press somebody. And then it ends up putting your team in a, an even less like uh, strong position. That would be a fancier way of saying weaker position. Uh, but with Jesus Ferreira tonight, I saw him waiting and delaying that press until it was a, an opportunity where he could apply pressure but also cut off half the field. And he did that routinely, that if Diego Godin was on the ball, he would wait until Godin sort of shifted to one side. That was where it seemed like he wanted to play. And then Ferreira would press, but press from the opposite side so that you couldn't have that back pass. You couldn't cut it back to Muslera. And that did force Uruguay long multiple times, or it did force them into balls out of bounds or just riskier passes. So I agree with you there. I think the pressing w was really, really good. I think I get nervous about his back-to-goal play sometimes, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. Because for as much as I've praised it, that he does drop in, 
does link up possession, is able to kind of play one and two touch passes. I do wonder if the lack of goals, he's feeling the pressure, if it does affect his just like comprehensive technical ability because a couple different moments in this one, there's one in the second minute where he has a ball into his feet and it's a heavy touch, maybe five yards away. He gets pressure. I think he ends up losing the ball. There's another one in the eighth minute. It's a, it's a long ball, but it's a designed long ball from a goal kick from Sean Johnson to find Jesus Ferreira. And he does, and he hits him on the chest and the resulting chest is like 10 yards up in the air and away from him. And I think he ends up again, getting dispossessed. And so no one's going to be perfect, except for maybe Robert Lewandowski. But you want him to be able to control those. You need him to be able to kind of lay that ball off and recycle. And I think some of that was down to individual errors. But I do also think some of it was not having people around him the way maybe he did against Morocco. That with Pulisic starting to st- set up wider as Scali stayed deeper and Wea staying wider... I think Weston McKinney, you're right, would occasionally be there as sort of a layoff support option, but other times he was deeper, and it ended up being Jesus Ferrer with nobody within 15 or 20 yards for that knockdown. And then you're asking a lot of your number nine. So I, I think I'm inclined to judge him less critically than maybe other folks would be. Joe, any other concerns about Jesus Ferrer or any other positives you think that should be noted? Not really. I don't have a ton of concerns about his game. I think Mm -hmm. just continuing to ensure that his movement off the ball is good and along with hopefully just hoping for a couple of goals here and there. Those are the keys for Ferreira right now. Taylor, you're mentioning you know, his his play with his back to goal, and I think generally he's pretty solid at that as he drops, and I think that can be one of his skill set, one of his strengths in that skill set. It just made me think of though, how in this game it felt like a lot of the burden for the U.S. in the attack was in central areas. And this is kind of my last thought on this game actually, at least for the most part. I think The U.S. in this game, you could very much see the decline in technical quality from the fullbacks. And as the game progressed, then also in the wide areas. When Paul Areola comes on in the second half, I think the U.S.'s attack goes down a little bit on that right side. When Joe Scali switches over to that right side, and and certainly when he was on the left side to start the game, the U.S. was a little predictable. I think we can still see some areas where the U.S. is light on talent. Some of the backup fullback spots, we've already talked about it, but I think that's pretty clear. The winger spots, too, after you get through those first few players, I don't think Baralter would have subbed like he did if this was an important game, obviously. But still, I think that was another reason why this game felt a little bit weird, just because the the players in some of the wide spaces I don't think are, are as good, and it was putting a little more burden on players like Jesus Ferreira, on Weston McKinney or Aronson, depending on which half you're in, and on even players like Musa and Tyler Adams to advance the ball and, and maybe even to create something in the final third. Uh, Joe, I, I think you're right. We're coming to a good stopping point. We we don't need to go too much longer on this game. One more player I want to ask you about, and you can give as brief of an answer as you want because here's your question. Uh, Tim Weah, good or very good? Uh, in this game, in between good and very good. Generally, I love Tim Weah. I thought he was impactful, but not quite... Like, like, he wasn't great on that yep. right side today. I thought he was good, and I think he changes this U.S. team. I think he's an excellent player. I'm just I'm just waiting for one little moment of magic. And there were a couple almost magical moments in this game, some really good skill from Waya on that right side, even in the first few minutes. But I'm still waiting for, like, a moment where he yeah, just pantses somebody and mm-hmm. just, like, absolutely devastates someone. And maybe that's me being greedy. It is me being greedy. But, man, I still love me some Tim Waya, and I thought he was very... Uh, Shoot, I guess I can't say very good then. I thought he was very nearly very good in this game, Taylor Rockwell. (laughs) 
I, I agree. By the way, I'm never telling you my middle name because I feel like you're very close to, to middle naming me, and then I'm going to feel like I've done something wrong. Oh, but I, I feel like I feel Rockwell. like you've said it before, and I cannot remember what it is. We'll come yeah, back to that at some point. You don't need to know. You don't need to know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have long felt that Tim Weah is a player who has the potential to be the biggest or first like super duper star. Pulisic is a known name. Gio Reyna is a known name. Weston McKinney is a known name. I think Weah. A lot of it has to do with his like off field. He's a he's a, a fashion fella. I think he likes rap as well, and maybe fancies himself a rapper. I just think he he has all the off field stuff that makes him a very interesting person. And I think on field he has all of that raw ability that he is in my mind slowly making less raw. But I I know exactly what you mean when I say that. He's, I think there's going to be a performance. My hope is that there's going to be a performance, ideally in the next six months, but maybe in the next year or two, where it is just that, like, oh, he has arrived and he puts it all together. And and it's like what we saw with that shot against Morocco. He, I think he starts having more of those and backing himself and, and starts getting goals, starts creating more chances. And I think we then see him jump to that next level because. Uh, the one that I think keeps me feeling very optimistic was in the 25th minute, he just skins somebody. It's a double step over. He gets right by them. But it's just that it kind of comes from nothing, and it's the U.S. having possession but not doing that much with it. And you need that difference maker. And so often it's Christian Pulisic. Occasionally it's Brendan Aronson. Occasionally it's Gio Reyna when he's fit. But I, I saw that from Tim Way, and it's a good reminder of what he can bring to this team. And as we've already said, he's another one who we would assume is a lock for the World Cup, so maybe we don't need to spend a ton of time talking about him. That leads me to my final question for you, Joe. In these next two Nations League games, which we would assume will see some experimentation, still the core group getting reps, is there a player or are there a couple players that are sort of on that bubble or would like to even get into that bubble conversation that you want to see more minutes played in these two games? I want to see EPB and CCV start together at center back, ideally. I don't think either one of those players has been great so far. I just want to see them get an extended run. Now, we need to be careful not to overreact against Granada because they're not a very good team, and it will be a home game Are for the Are they not US. going to the World Cup? I didn't know. I don't, I don't think so, Taylor Rockwell. I do not. Th- I mean, I am, I am going first and last a lot today. I don't know what's up with that. Golly. Hey, Either Joe way, Lowry, you got to do what you got to do, my friend. I guess so. I guess so. Either way, I would like to see CCV and EPB. Let's get just all the initials in the back that we can. Um, and I would like to see Luca De La Torre. That's another one for me. I want to see him get a full game or, or at least like 60 or 70 minutes from the jump, whether that's in the double pivot, depending on the buildup shape, or, or just as a number eight or maybe even a number six, if Baralter wants to revisit any of that from the Morocco game. I just want to see De La Torre. I love watching him. I think he's a good player, and I think he's earned more minutes in this group. I think it'd be interesting to see Luca De La Torre, because he came on for Adams against Morocco. It'd be interesting to see him start in that spot and see what he yeah. can do against a team that we would assume will be more defensive and the U.S. will have more more of the ball. How does he help unlock that defense? What does he do to facilitate that attacking play? I think that's a great shout. I'd love to see Luca De La Torre in there. I like that center back pairing because I don't think Eric Palmer Brown had a had a good game. I think he gets skinned at least once and has just a few awkward passes. He, uh, what, overhits or underhits that one to I think it's Pulisic that leads to the counterattack opportunity, yeah. and that could have been a bit better. So maybe with a start, he just gets maybe more sure footing. And with CCV, we'd like to see more with the uh, distribution and winning a header off of a cross so that Joe doesn't have uh, those concerns that he did against <laughs> Morocco. Uh, I like all that. Would you like to see Haji Wright start one of those games? Sure. Yeah, I think it would be good to get an extended look at Wright. I, I think maybe this Granada game could be a good time for that. I don't I don't really care. I wouldn't even be upset if we saw him in both of those games, but maybe Granada would be a better fit because we might see more of the established group back against El Salvador, and Ferreira, I think, is is someone that I would value 
getting, and I would prioritize getting more of those minutes with Polisic and Wayad, some of the first choice midfielders. So yeah, right against Granada on Friday, I think would be perfect, Taylor. All right. Well, we will see what happens with that game. For now, though, Joe, I feel like we've talked plenty about a nil-nil draw. Any other points you wanted to make before we uh, we give it a break for the evening? I like soccer. Soccer's yep. fun. The U.S. team is fun even when they don't play their best. This was still fun. I actually do have one more question. Speaking of liking soccer, we learned today that Wales uh, eliminated Ukraine, so Wales will be the final team in our group. Are you relieved by that? Because I am relieved by that. I feel horrible for Ukraine. Uh, you want them to go. You want it to be this this great success story and this and this sort of happy narrative for a country that does not have many happy narratives right now. But on a selfish competition level, as arrogant as this may be, and as like foolhardy as this may be, when Wales beats us five nil. I think if you're choosing between playing Wales and playing Ukraine, at least right now, even though they won, I still think I'd rather play uh, Wales than Ukraine. Yeah, my editor at MLSsoccer.com, Jonathan Siegel, I thought tweeted out a very accurate, uh, he tweeted out a summation of my thoughts on this whole thing. From a competitive standpoint, I wanted the U.S. men's national team to play Wales. From a human standpoint, I was hoping it would be Ukraine. Either way, the World Cup group is set. That's exactly how I feel. Wales is, a, in my opinion, a much worse team than Ukraine. Ukraine's a very, very good soccer team. I think they were unfortunate not to advance and make it to the World Cup. I wanted to see, from a human standpoint, Ukraine make it. And, and for, ha- for, for those people to have something to celebrate, I think that would have been amazing and it would have been a great story. From a soccer standpoint and from a U.S. men's national team standpoint, I think anybody in that camp is lying to themselves if they said they weren't happy that Wales advanced. <laughs> Here we are. Well, that is a good note to end on. And commiserations to Graham Ruffin for it not being Scotland, but we welcome yeah. uh, Greg Rogers. I think I renamed him. Or yes. Grim Rogers. Yes. Greg Grim Rogers. Greg Grim. Uh, yeah. Welcome to the U.S. national team bandwagon. Uh, we just tied the number 13 team in the world. Uh, and it was definitely their full strength team. And it was definitely for a really sure. competitive game. For so sure, we sure. should feel confident that we're going to make the World Cup final. <laughs> yes, that is an accurate sales pitch. Perfect. On that note, Joe Lowry, thank you for agreeing with that, as uh, problematic as it may be. I do appreciate it, and I appreciate all your time this evening. Uh, Right back at you, Taylor. Joseph Francis Lowry. I'm making up your middle name. Why not? Yep, that is, that's definitely right. You got it. (laughs) Listeners, listener Francis, listener, uh, we appreciate (laughs) you all joining us as well. We're over an hour, so things get weird. We will talk to you all several more times this week, but for now, have a great evening. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 